here at Umurung Mudgee. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to your monthly Indigenous STEM special for Take It Black, where you can stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and speak to people working in this space to find out what they're up to. First, here's some tech news. Take It Black. Just a quick warning here for content about sexual assault. Skip ahead a minute or so if you need to. TikTok has developed new resources to help community members feel safe and comfortable sharing their experiences, including difficult conversations like those around sexual assault. Sexual assault resources on TikTok Safety Centre will connect survivors within the TikTok community with help, information and services. In the coming months, the social media platform will also be rolling out permanent resources in the app, like permanent public service announcements on hashtags like Consent Matters and Me Too to foster supportive conversations and connect the community to the help resources in the safety centre. Google have announced a raft of new AI-powered tools coming to Google Maps to help you get the most accurate, up-to-date information around the world exactly when you need it. One of these is Indoor Live View, which uses augmented reality and street view imagery to help you navigate airports, train stations and shopping centres. It's like Pokemon Go for lifts and toilets. Speaking of Google, Google Australia just launched a new self-assessment tool in Search where people can see their risk for depression as well as connect with evidence-based resources, crisis hotlines and additional support from teams at Black Tog Institute and Lifeline. Early intervention and access to mental health support services are now more important than ever, following a difficult few years for our country with bushfires and drought and COVID-19. Search interest for what is depression reached its highest peak in more than a decade in March 2020 in Australia. So there is a great opportunity to direct people to the support they need right at the moment when they're looking for that information. Now anyone in Australia searching for depression can not only view trusted information on the condition but also opt to take a nine-question self-assessment that's based on a clinically validated questionnaire called PHQ-9 or Patient Health Questionnaire 9. This questionnaire is used by healthcare providers to evaluate someone's level of depression and identify resources that would be most suitable for their needs. Australia is the first country outside of the US to launch this depression screener on search. And I spoke with Jill Newby from the Black Dog Institute about how the tool works. So people tell us not to Google symptoms, but to go to the doctor instead. This seems like a time that it would actually be useful, though. It's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So this time, if someone's Googling depression, then they'll be taken to a self-report questionnaire that assesses how severe their depression symptoms and gives them feedback about whether or not they may or may not be experiencing depression. What can you tell me about the questionnaire that people are prompted to take? Because it is a a, a medical questionnaire, isn't it? 
That's right. So it's a validated questionnaire and there's been about 20 years of research into it. It's called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 Items. So it's a very brief assessment scale that measures depression symptoms and severity. And what impact has COVID-19 had on our mental health? You've been doing a lot of research in this area, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So we've done research into adult mental health and also youth mental health as well. Um, And we've shown that the pandemic has had a negative impact on the mental health of Australians all throughout the lifespan. Um, And that includes increased distress, increased anxiety, increased depression, and also fear and uncertainty about the future. And how have you seen technology be able to make a positive impact on our mental health? Because it's often associated with something a bit more negative for our mental health. That's right. And I think the pandemic has shone a spotlight about the importance of mental health and also the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of Australians. And what's been a really good news story is that there's been a lot more focus in the media around mental health, but also increases in help seeking. So we've seen a, a very substantial increase in the amount of people that are doing our digital mental health programs. So digital mental health programs cover everything from smartphone apps all the way through to online programs. And they've been really accessible throughout the pandemic um, and teach people how to improve their mental health and stay well um, by learning practical skills and techniques. Is there anything in particular you'd like people to know about this collaboration with Google? We have been um, working with Google for the past year, just making sure that when people do a self-assessment for depression, that they get taken to evidence-based resources and links. So what's really important is that they don't just get told whether or not they might be experiencing depression, but they're linked in with um, very practical tools, evidence-based programs and also different types of supports that they might benefit from. So that includes digital mental health programs but also links to the Australian Psychological Society um, and other, other websites where they can get help. Fantastic. And if someone wants to use this tool, what do they need to do? Do they just you know, type depression into Google? Yep, that's right. So they just type depression into Google and then they can click on the self-report questionnaire and then they get taken through the, the nine items and then they get feedback on what their scores might mean. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your work on this. It sounds like something that's going to be really beneficial to a lot of people. So thank you for chatting with me about it. Thanks for having me. Food waste is a major contributor to climate change, estimated to contribute around 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions every year. Australia is wasting more than 7.3 million tonnes of food every year. To put that into context, that's about 9,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools every 12 months. I spoke with Bill Pappas, who is helping companies reduce their food waste. So tell me a little bit about UGIS. What does UGIS do? I like it to think that UGIS is an environmental and sustainability uh, business with a clear focus on bringing technology, innovative technology, I should say, around uh, environmental and sustainable uh, topics, uh, specifically in the waste industry and the energy sectors, along with water and health. Um, we are very focused on bringing technologies in a very unique way that solve problems in those specific areas. 
Um, we've got some key successes uh, around two fundamental uh, key areas of our business being waste and energy at the moment. So I'll just talk to you about uh, waste for a moment. Yeah, sure. So in the waste space, it's all about, you know, I guess challenging and being a market disruptor. Uh, more than anything else, an area that has been monopolised by, I guess, the the waste businesses and waste companies, where sustainability and uh, environmental solutions are headlines, but there's no action or activity to the end user to understand exactly what happens with their waste or how to even deal with their waste and what options they have. And so our key focus is bringing together uh, innovation, um, business transparency into what goes on both at a waste level and an innovation and technology and doing it in a very unique way um, through our, I guess, uh, managed services programs and also with a clear view of providing visibility and data to make informed decisions around how to treat things on a sustainability level and ultimately leads into commercial benefits as well. So I'd love for you to talk to me a little bit about how you're using the Internet of Things to reduce food waste. Like, wh- what, do you, what do you mean when we say the Internet of Things? The Internet of Things, when it relates to waste and how it uh, brings innovation and technology to a customer, is all about giving access to data and visibility. And so traditionally there's been no visibility by waste providers into exactly what happens to you know, a business's waste or people's waste. And so our objective and what we want to have resonate with a business is turning or converting dumb assets into smart assets. By that, we mean that we can provide all the same typical technologies or facilities in the same way that's been traditionally done, except with one key area being data and being as informative as possible to make decisions based on facts, knowledge, and obviously that will drive sustainability outcomes, circular economy, and a reduction in carbon footprint. So you're collecting all of this information from these businesses about food waste and then giving it back to them in a way that they can make decisions to help reduce it, basically. Yeah, food waste is one area or one stream of uh, waste that uh, we've had a lot of success in. So we have technology now that we can deal with waste on site. So it eliminates having trucks on the road. Obviously, that is a direct reduction in carbon footprint using existing infrastructure being plumbing uh, and water uh, infrastructure that allows us to transport, I guess, what is a grey water or effluent that leads to... Uh, wastewater treatment plants where, again, it converts into energy or it's captured and converted into energy. So it is very much about closing the loop um, and certainly allows us to um, provide through our uh, through our UGIS portal, shows the environmental benefits and impacts uh, live and, uh, and what the offset is. Uh, based on this positive technology and positive uh, behaviour that's going on today. And how how does food waste contribute to climate change? What's the connection there? So it it, it actually is in a a number of ways. The most evident way that everyone always looks at is that uh, non-separation of organics ends up in, in general waste and into landfill. 
Um, there are some, I guess, diversions from landfill to AD facilities, but all AD facilities today are rel relatively at capacity. And so then finding a sustainable solution for, you know, uh, back to your question, organics creates methane gas when, when diverted to landfill. Right. When it's in that particular space, obviously that is a direct impact. The second impact is the way it gets there through trucks on the road, again, has a direct uh, impact on emissions uh, through transportation needs. And so by finding some innovative technology that we can deal with on site, we are taking out and eliminating all of those processes of transportation and where it ends up that directly lead to carbon footprint and methane gas in the atmosphere. Well, that makes sense. And how much food is being wasted? Do we know? Oh, I'd love to give you some. About $20 million a year. Wow. 20 million, billion, sorry, not 20 million. 20, 20 billion. billion. Yes. So that's how that's the value of food waste. So you can imagine then on a on a on a scale of uh, on a per capita basis, it is it is quite incredible. So we are one of those countries that are quite wasteful. We probably rank in the top 10 of you know food waste creators. Uh, so on a per capita basis, we are you know generally very frivolous about creating food or waste and then the problem being created is not being dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we always see these kinds of initiatives targeted at the individual, you know, to make sure that they're not throwing out or, or wasting food in their own home. But you know, you've, I think you've really highlighted the importance of focusing on the industries that are really creating the bulk of this waste. You know, do you think that that's a more important thing to focus on or do individual actions matter as well? Obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a broad view that we take and I think as a community and as a population, we all have a responsibility and changing that behaviour is what is ultimately going to drive change with businesses and dealing with, you know, organic food waste. Obviously, when you look at the broader, you know, waste issue, whether it's plastic, organic or anything else, organics is probably the simplest thing or the simplest area. We can all make a change immediately. And so it is the low-hanging fruit, pardon the pun, that <laughs> we focus our attention on because I think there's very, very simple ways that we can make a significant difference uh, both to carbon emissions and uh, obviously the, the carbon footprint overall. Why is this something that's important for you to be working on, to be providing solutions in this space? I think there's been a, a distinct lack of uh, innovation being brought into you know, the whole waste sector. The demand, though, is being generated by people and businesses, and a lot of large corporates are very, very uh, focused in this particular area. They're focused on being able to make a difference, and so whether that's Coles, Woolworths, uh, Westfields or large corporate corporations where they have large industrial kitchens uh, or at the front line of, you know, waste being generated is that they are becoming more and more conscious by public opinion. Um, they are the creators of the largest portion of the waste, uh, both directly and indirectly through what they do. So as a, as a, as a, as a, as a population and as a community, 
I think we're we're compelled from a personal standpoint. Um, you know, having been in business for, for so long and been associated with so many community uh, clubs and charities, it's something that I feel really passionate about in giving something back. Um, being in business is not just about the business. It's about leaving... And what UJA stands for is leaving behind a legacy for our kids and our grandkids to, uh, to, to be proud of the work that we've done, the positive work that we've done and can leave behind, uh, you know, a very healthy planet. Well, congratulations on the success so far. And fingers crossed we see this rolling out across the country and across the world. Thank you for your time today, Bill. Absolute pleasure, eh? Thank you. A groundbreaking new partnership between two training organisations and Adelaide's beloved football club has been created to lift the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the STEM workforce from effectively 0% where it currently stands. I spoke with Bren Saunders about that partnership. Can you tell me a little bit about what Garu Infotech does? Yeah, Garu uh, Infotech is a IT consulting business. So we've uh, we commenced our operations under the radar, still under the radar, uh, in uh, January of 2020. And what we were aiming to do, which we are still uh, targeting and trying to combat, which is the representation of uh, Indigenous people in tech, in the tech sector as a whole. Um, it, it's really looking at dismantling those existing foundations that are in place uh, that uh, sort of block or hinder uh, Indigenous people coming into this space. So really looking at new ways to engage, new ways to uh, employ, new ways to train, uh, and then offer, offering up career opportunities within our business for Indigenous people. What are those blockages that currently exist? What needs breaking down? Uh, from from my own perspective, from Gauri's perspective, uh, when we did our... Uh, uh, I guess you could say our exploration at the start uh, of January 2020, uh, engaging with the universities, what we saw was that uh, tech was not uh, a, an attractive um, type of education stream for Indigenous people. Um, community services was more popular in that regard. So we needed to look at ways to uh, show that tech could provide long-lasting career opportunities, but also uh, contributing to those community-type uh, services in a way where growth, development uh, and digital uh, transformation occurs to uh, advance those services uh, in a more futuristic perspective. So some of those blockages were around simply uh, getting the messages out there and saying tech can be quite a, a positive, long-lasting career path for First Nations uh, people in this space. Um, but then looking at how do we as an employer uh, assist uh, First Nations people that want to be upskilled or skilled in this space for the first time. So coming down from, you could say, our high horse of expectations and looking for the elite expertise and starting to invest uh, in new ways uh, of training staff, new, new staff, new people that may be coming from uh, different sectors into the tech space and not having such a high expectation uh, on those individuals coming into the space. So it's really peeling back the onion and, and not um, assuming that whoever comes through the door is going to know everything about tech. Do you think that there needs to be a bit of reframing from both, you know, the employer perspective and also from from the person coming into the business perspective of what tech and STEM 
means, like how it is, you know, perceived by both sides, because there's, you know, obviously Indigenous knowledge that is technology that's been passed down for generations and it doesn't really seem to hold the same weight within side employers. Do, do you think that that's a relevant thing? Absolutely. I think it's um, paramount for that type of amalgamation, I guess you could call it. Now, one of the things that we're focused on doing at Garu is amalgamating the evolving world of technology and what we call cultural intelligence, so Indigenous cultural intelligence. So when we're looking at things in regards to land management, you know, that, that relates directly with GIS services. So how can we bring those fundamentals of our elders and, and over 60,000 years of, of knowledge uh, into a space that is uh, forever evolving? Uh, tech is always going to evolve. And so it's perfect to bring in that cultural intelligence aspect to continue that evolution, but also bringing along um, you know, First Nations history and culture to be a part of that evolution. Yeah, it's really important. Um, can you tell me a bit about the Generation Australia Junior Web Developer Program? Yes, so uh, as of uh, last month, late last month, um, we launched Townley Aboriginal College, which uh, we helped and are involved with at Takaru. Uh, we assisted in the creation of the Junior Web Developer Program uh, in conjunction with Generation Australia and the Adelaide Football Club. And we specifically designed the program around how could we assist young people and mature people to come into this space in an environment that would enable them to feel safe in terms of the support that they would receive from Townsie Aboriginal College, from not only the tutors there, but also the environment, having a culturally safe environment as well. Um, and that uh, training program uh, is delivered by through Generation Australia and Academy XI. Uh, and it's looking at ways to uh, provide the fundamentals, the entry-level fundamentals uh, of individuals who are eager to uh, be in the tech space, uh, in particular the development, the web development space, uh, and uh, essentially assist them in getting jobs once they've completed that training. So from a Garu perspective, we're actually committing to uh, take on graduates as a part of this program that come out of it. So it is, um, it's specifically identified for, for First Nations individuals to apply and then go through the training course uh, with Generation and Townsie Aboriginal College. And what is involved in the program exactly? What will the students be doing? So it's a, it's a three-month course, web development course, uh, where it sees participants uh, learn in-demand skills uh, that relate to the industry uh, with a guaranteed job interview at the end of it. So it's looking for um, program development skills, building webs, web uh, interfaces, coding, uh, those essential fundamentals at the start, but also looking at uh, the overarching skills of the whole individual. So not just the technical skills, uh, but the uh, interpersonal skills as well. So collaborating with a team, uh, working individually, uh, and then trying to blend that all together. Because some people will come onto this program who may necess not necessarily have a tech background. That's completely fine. Uh, and it may be their first time uh, in an employment space. So it is trying to not only uh, build the, the tech knowledge, but also those uh, personal skills as well. Now, when I think about web development, I don't think about the Adelaide Football Club. How does that come <laughs> together? How, how does Adelaide Football Club you know, become involved in something like this? 
Yeah, so, so the Adelaide Football Club have quite a, a strong uh, STEM uh, academy, to, to be uh, su- surprising wow. <laughs> in regards to that. So they look at um, STEM in regards to sports data and analytics and how uh, they can offer up a, a new perspective around that. Nice. So what Townie and, and Generation saw was a great opportunity to engage with the Adelaide Crews uh, on growing that platform that they've got, that, that existing experience that they have but also um, tapping into their existing uh, Indigenous Youth uh, Academy programs. So, you know, we we all understand that not every single player uh, is going to end up at the top level. So it is looking at those uh, Plan B options. So providing those Youth uh, Academy participants with opportunities uh, in tech, providing that certification, industry certification through this program, and then having an opportunity of employment within this space. So it's a full circle. So the Crows, uh, they come on as a, a community partner. They've got quite a strong uh, brand here in South Australia, um, but also quite a strong uh, STEM-focused uh, platform at the moment. So, yeah, it's a, it's a whole community-orientated program, and we're really looking to um, grow it across the state. Well, that makes a lot more sense to me now. Thank you. (laughs) So you have said that this partnership's a a natural fit because of Generation Australia's methodology in training the whole person. What do you mean by that? So going back to to my comments around uh, the technical skills and also the personal skills, Townie is all focused, because I sit on on the the board of Townie as the deputy chairperson. So we are focused on assisting not only the technical skills that individuals will receive as part of any of our courses, but it's also the the personal skills. So the things that uh, I guess you're... Uh, you know, I guess some other people in, in community take these types of skills, base skills for granted in terms of literacy and numeracy uh, and really trying to close uh, those gaps uh, that may be present within individuals' learning capabilities. So it's not just taking uh, the first obstacle or hurdle as the challenge and then saying we can't go further. It's actually diving deep into how we can improve that type of um, gap that that individual needs to work on, whether it be literacy and numeracy or communication skills or team skills, uh, and assisting them through the process and not uh, seeing that first obstacle and thinking it's too hard to progress. So that's what we mean by the whole person, and that's the the fundamentals and foundations of how Townie operates uh, with community members across uh, South Australia. Nice. So how can people find out more information if they're interested in taking part or supporting the program in some way? Yeah, they can they can jump onto either our Facebook page, our LinkedIn page, or our, our new Instagram page to find the link uh, to the Junior Web Developer Program. Um, they can also head over to the Townie website. So it's www.townie.sa.edu.au. Uh, and they can find information via that or even call into the college uh, on. I'll get that number for you right now because I've just closed the, uh, the, the website. So. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> when, when we had um, tech issues earlier today. <laughs> we did, we did. <laughs> <laughs> tech issues as in me not checking that other people live in other states and calling you half an hour <laughs> early. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. But, um, but yeah, so uh, participants who are eager to, to find out more can call into the college on 08 824 um, And that uh, is a 
9 to 5 uh, time frame in terms of 9am and at 5pm um, staff members will be there to answer any queries. Wonderful. Now, before we go, this is obviously something that you're very passionate about. What excites you most about this program? The outcomes. So seeing seeing the uh, participation rate of First Nations peoples involved in tech space going up. Here in South Australia, it's closer to zero at the moment. Um, but uh, within Gowrie ourselves, we've just employed two uh, junior associate consultants who uh, identify as Aboriginal people, uh, and they're currently delivering some tech, entry-level tech services uh, at a company called South Australian Power Networks. So we're working closely with SA Power Networks to build a strong relationship there and um, grow our program. So seeing the outcomes is what makes me so excited by playing a role and then contributing to this. Uh, prior to my uh, time in tech, it was uh, working in the public sector. So um, having an opportunity to contribute to change uh, and also challenging, uh, I guess, what um, the current participation rate is and improving that is also very rewarding. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. My special guest for this episode is the deadly Matt Heffernan, who you might know from his work as a developer with InDigital, run by friend of Take It Black, Michaela Jade. We got together to chat about his study in artificial intelligence within the justice system, among other things. Thanks so much for joining me, Matt. We'll start with you, how we start with every guest on uh, Take a Black, and that's Who's Your Mob? Where are you from? Yeah, um, my mob is the Lurcha, um, Pizindara, Pinabi, and Aranda from Central Australia. Awesome. And have you always been into more of the geekier side of life? Um, I was an undercover geek for a while. <laughs> What's an undercover geek? <laughs> well, I'm old enough. Um, that being a geek wasn't that cool. Um, so I used to be an undercover geek trying to be a cool dude. Um, <laughs> but now it's so mainstream. Um, yeah, I'm loud and proud about it. And now we're the cool ones, right? <laughs> it's all flipped. So tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now. Um, I'm working on a Master's of Applied Cybernetics at um, ANU, at the 3AI Institute here in Canberra. Now, that sounds pretty awesome. What is cybernetics exactly? Oh, I should have prepared for this question. (laughs) (laughs) Is it one of those things that's just super hard to explain? There's people who are really, really good at explaining it and um, doing so in sort of two sentences. Sadly, I'm not one of those people. Um, I can try and give maybe like a super quick overview. Yeah, go for it. Just your own words, however however you think. doesn't even matter if it's not super quick. Generally say to folks is it's robots and AI, but I think that's probably a bit too um, reductionist, reductive. Um, the course itself is it definitely touches on those uh, disciplines, Um but it's also kind of the the larger social, ethical, um, philosophical context around um, AI and machine learning and robotics. Um, Yeah, that's kind of cybernetics. 
Awesome. So when you're talking about ethics you know, around artificial intelligence, are we talking about things like you know bias being built in, that sort of thing? That's definitely a huge component of it. Um, but it's, it's also just um, more broadly um, what how will these things impact people just in general? You know, um, there, there's a lot of discussion at the moment even um, around automate, automation taking over jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's more so it's not automation itself that's not taking the jobs. It's the businesses choosing automation over people. The, these are choices people are making. So it's sort of the ethics around that sort of stuff. Um, uh, there's a lot of discussion as well around um, law and order. Um, or the justice system um, and the, the police force using technology, um, facial recognition tech, um, all of those kinds of things play into the ethical considerations. Yeah, because there's been a lot of cases, I, I know in police overseas as well, using facial recognition technology that's been really wildly inaccurate because of the inbuilt bias where it doesn't recognise the differences in darker-skinned facial features and they've ended up arresting the wrong people. Is that a, a path that you're working towards trying to avoid happening here as well? Um, it's not something I'm specifically looking at, um, but in Australia, I mean, we, we have our own issues as well. We've got the Clearview AI, um, which was initially denied by um, some of our police forces, um, and that's that's not an open source system that they're using for facial recognition. So we don't actually know the type of tech, um, and we don't know the, the type of algorithms that are being used in this um, technology by the police force. There's no, there's no regulation around it. Our policies haven't caught up with it. Um, I'm actually personally looking at um, sort of uh, interventions um, that we can create between initial Indigenous people's interaction with police and the death and custody. Um, that, that's kind of my area of interest. How can technology disrupt what's happening in, in that time between that initial interaction and then um, our mob dying? Yeah. And what possibilities are you seeing play out in the future, maybe with technology in this space? Um, I, I try to be optimistic. <laughs> um so I, I definitely think that more mob will be uh, taking up technology, uh, especially as a lot of industry have now moved into um, tech or uh, even the internet as a way to sell. Um, I, I definitely think mob are going to start looking at ways in which they can leverage technology for our own purposes, whether that's commercial, artistic or for social justice causes. Yeah, so going back to the social justice causes as well, you know, because we've got, you know, apps at the moment like Copwatch and, you know, ways to you know, monitor police activity and, you know, potentially brutality as well. So what technologies are you seeing evolving in that space that can help protect mob in custody? I haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> We're hoping um, to make some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely want to be um, encouraging conversations and myself working on, on that technology. 
Um, there are, as you said, some good apps out there, at least um, from the U.S., and some social justice organizations in the U.S. that have sort of led the way with this stuff. So um, it, it is something that I would like to reach out to them about. So they had the Stop and Frisk app. Um, so things like that, I, I think, have um, a utility here in Australia as well. Awesome. So who do you work with when you're you know, studying this? Do you collaborate with organisations or other people working in this space or fellow students? Yeah, there's quite a range of um, lecturers and professionals and um, even the cohort, the master's cohort itself has um, quite a range of different backgrounds. So they're not all just tech geeks like myself. <laughs> um so we do have quite a range of um, backgrounds there, including, um, you know, uh, public servants, um, some ex-bureaucrats and, and so on. Um, I, I think as the what I'm looking to do as it progresses, um, I would definitely need to be including uh, NGOs or um, in specifically Indigenous academics, specifically, um, you know, the Indigenous uh, Centre Jabal here at ANU. So when did you start working in this area and, and think about studying this? Yeah, obviously, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, this sort of thing, it wasn't really around, you know, when we were young. So where did you think you were going to be heading and how did you get on this path? Uh, I've always kind of had an interest in technology. Um from as young as I can remember, I was kind of playing video games and, and stuff on the PC, on um, dad's old laptop. Nice. Back in the 80s, dad had, my dad had this huge suitcase and it was actually one of the you know early, early laptops. Um, it was in black and white and um, yeah, I used to play Space Invaders on it. Nice. <laughs> I, I grew up with technology around me. And I guess later, just always being exposed to that, um, having to use DOS and um, DOS commands and, and so on kind of got me interested in how operating systems work and that sort of thing. Um, and, then, and then just the video game stuff as well. So uh, way, way back in the day, I was looking at um, C, C++ to try and make my own little text adventures and, and so on. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um but it wasn't really until later on in life that I took it seriously. Um, so the initial path I wanted to take is kind of just a classical kind of, um, you know, maybe working in um, an NGO or something like that. So I was a public servant for far too long. Um, <laughs> and But that kind of was a good pathway for me because uh, I was working in um, an economics and policy department and one of the processes we had there was to uh, develop quarterly briefs, essentially, um, economic updates. And what we would have to do, Ray, is go to the Australian um, Bureau of Statistics website, go and find the specific um, uh, spreadsheet, download the spreadsheet, put it in the right place, and then manually um, do the number counting. <sighs> That sounds like a fun process. <laughs> so that would take maybe two days-ish, depending. 
um, to um, pull that together. And I just got so sick of it. I was like, surely we can just automate this. This is ridiculous. So I kind of got my head back into the programming space to learn how to do exactly that. Um, and once I developed the, um, so, well, it was the, the automation process behind it. Once I had, um, you know, coded that up, I kind of was asking myself, I would be getting paid way more to do this than my actual job. So <laughs> I could do this. And I found it more enjoyable too. So that kind of was a spark for me that got me back into the technology space. Nice. And so how did you get to a point where you decided to head into you know, studying and, and heading down the AI path as well? Uh, that was kind of a, a mixture of things, really. Um, I, I think it was my disappointment in what could be achieved in the public service. Um, I felt like the policy responses and even, you know, at a more operational level, some of the projects I was working on were maybe, you know, two to five years behind what was actually happening in the industry. So some of the things that I was working on was, um, you know, Indigenous business development and managing grants around that. And my frustration with that process was we were still thinking about businesses as a brick and mortar. You had to have a shop front. You had to have um, a certain amount of turnover. So it wasn't really sort of fostering, you know, startup culture. It wasn't really fostering the way in which the industry was moving even at that time. So um, that kind of just really, and a few other things, made me leave the government. And, and that's when I had to ask myself, is this something that I still want to keep doing or do I now pivot? So it, it was one of those <laughs> forks in the road. Um, moments in my life that made me decide to study, do the, the IT thing. And then during my study at CDU, unfortunately, um, without critiquing them too much, I found that there wasn't much content around AI. And um, that kind of interested me in why something that's such a, a, a massive um, discipline that's fast encroaching into all areas of our life wasn't a real topic of discussion at a university. It's so, funny that, um, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I, I found it interesting. It is an interesting gap. Yeah, for sure. So since you've been around for, we can say you've been around for a while, talking about your first uh, laptop being the size of a briefcase, <laughs> <laughs> have you got any advice for younger mob out there that might want to get into doing what you're doing now? I think it's being kind to yourself. I think it's it's one of those areas where you can quickly become overwhelmed by the the rabbit holes, how how deep some of the topics go. And once you start to learn things, you realise how much you don't actually know. Oh, yes. Um, and and that can be something very difficult to to manage. Um, especially with you know the stress or whatever of study, but um, I think my advice would be just to you know one foot in front of the other, just um, you know be kind to yourself and realize that even the best programmers, even the best hackers, and, and so on, started somewhere. Perfect. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ray. Oh, 
That was Matt Heffernan. And if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Give us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe. And if there's anything STEM-related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at Ray Johnston and I'll give you all the info in the next STEM episode. Until then, don't forget to take it black. Oh,